We're in the middle of a short series asking some basic Easter questions. Two weeks ago, we asked, who is Jesus? Last week, we asked, why did Jesus die? And this morning, we ask our third basic Easter question, why did Jesus rise? Why does the resurrection matter? Again, we're continuing in Romans. This morning, we're looking at Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14, asking, why did Jesus rise? Several years ago, I was in a member's interview interviewing a young man uh, to, to join our church, and uh, we asked him what he believes, what the gospel is, and he very thoughtfully explained uh, Jesus' death rough, roughly following the Apostles' Creed, that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, and the third day he rose again from the dead. And he made this interesting comment. He said, I know why Jesus died. He died for my sins. He died that I could be free. Um, I understand all who he was, why he was God, why he was man. I'm not sure I fully understand, though, why he rose again. What, what does that really do in the grand scheme of things? Uh, and I think if we're honest with ourselves, this is a very good question, that we celebrate that Jesus rose again, but do we understand why it's important that he rose again? Why does it really matter? So we're going to ask this question this morning, looking at Romans 6, 1 through 14, beginning at verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can he who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. This is God's word. Sorry if I cough here. I'm coming over a cold and... I'm afraid Charles Wesley is one note too high for me at one point in Alleluia there, and we sung that twice this morning if you were at the sunrise service, so I'm feeling a little raspy. Uh, up to this point in the book of Romans, we've kind of been hopping and skipping through the book, but up to this point, Paul has been arguing that basically, uh, 1.17, the righteous shall live by faith. We don't live eternally because of good things we do. We don't live because of our own worthiness. We live by faith. We live through Christ's work, Jesus' death on our behalf. Now, Paul advances his argument in this passage by addressing a basic objection. 
Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? If everything depends on God and His work in Christ, does it then matter what I do? If salvation is by grace, then don't our sins give God more opportunity to show His grace? Does it really matter if we sin, if Christ has done everything for us? And Paul's answer is, by no means. Far from giving license to sin, God's grace actually leads us out of the realm of sin and into new life. Paul's argument in this passage is like a braided rope with three strands. He says, first, we died with Christ. Second, we rise with Christ. And third, therefore, we can resist sin. Now, let's examine these strands of this, of this braided rope argument in turn. Let us consider first, the first truth that Paul teaches us in this passage, that we died with Christ. We died with Christ. How do we die with Christ? What does that mean? We die with Christ, Paul says, because we are united to him. Paul uses a number of phrases in this passage to convey this basic truth. We are baptized into Christ Jesus. We are united with him. We were crucified with him. We are in Christ Jesus. The term Paul uses here for united refers elsewhere in Greek literature to grafting. A couple weeks ago, we took a tractor tour through Bella Wood Acres down the guide here, and uh, one section of that, of that uh, orchard has about 250 trees that had recently been grafted. They cut off the tree trunk about two feet off the ground, and they graft in stems of a different variety of apple so they can get a new uh, mature tree much quicker in a couple years rather than waiting for a seedling to grow full. And this is what Paul says has happened to us. We have been grafted into Christ. We're like branches grafted into a tree. Life is breathed from another source. We've been made participants with him. First, though, we've been made participants with him in his death. Notice Paul's not commanding us to do anything in this passage. He's not saying unite yourself to Christ, graft yourself into Christ, Rather, he simply describes the reality of the Christian life. He says, you have been grafted by God. In grammatical terms, we'd say that Paul uses indicative verbs and passive verbs describing something that has happened to us. You have been baptized into Christ, united, crucified. It's something done to us, not by us. Furthermore, in verse 3, Paul says that our baptism signifies this union with Christ. Our baptism is a sign of this relationship, just like a wedding ring is the sign of a relationship. But baptism is only meaningful, it's only effective in the context of a real relationship. You can put on a ring, but that doesn't make you married. Likewise, you can be baptized, but it doesn't mean there's a real relationship with it. But in the context of a real relationship, it's a meaningful, important, and effective sign and seal. We not only die with Christ because we are united with him, we die with Christ because he has died for us. By our union to Christ, we share in the benefits secured by his death. As Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake, God made Christ who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Look at verse 10 of our passage and you see the same dynamic. Christ died 
once for all. On the cross, Jesus definitively dealt with our sin, with our rebellion against God. By dying to sin once for all, Christ broke the power of sin. And in verse 7, he says, the one who has died has been set free from sin. More literally, maybe your Bible footnote says this. He says, the one who has died has been justified from sin. That is to say, death is the punishment for sin. Christ has uh, absorbed this punishment. He's, he's paid the penalty that our sin deserves. And therefore, our debt was settled. We're made right with God. If we are united with Christ then, we have been baptized into his death. We have been justified. Our penalty for our rebellion against Christ has been paid. We have died with Christ. What's the result then of our having died with Christ? Not only that our punishment has been endured, but we see a further result. Paul says, if you have been united to Christ, you have died with him, then you are dead to sin. In verse 6, Paul lays out the implications of this in three steps. He says, by virtue of our union with Christ, our old self has been crucified with him. It's as if we were crucified. Paul uses a compound verb here, crucified with. He uses a prefix on the, on the verb. This verb elsewhere is used in Matthew, Mark, and John to describe two criminals who were crucified with Jesus. Paul's saying in short, just as surely as two criminals were crucified on either side of Jesus, so too our old selves were crucified beside Jesus. We are nothing but the dying criminal who says to Jesus, remember me this day. Second, Paul says we are crucified with him so that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Now, this doesn't mean that our bodies are inherently sinful or the real problem. Our bodies are created by God. Jesus in the incarnation took a human body. And at the resurrection, God declares the eternal significance of our bodies. He raises Jesus' body from the dead. But Paul does point to the truth that sin uses our bodies for its own evil purposes. It perverts our natural instincts, degrading sleepiness into sloth, hunger into gluttony, and sexual desires into lust. But as we are crucified with Christ, our sinful nature is defeated and disabled, even though its lingering effects are with us every day. So third, Paul says, by participating in Christ's death, the, the body of sin is, has been defeated, and we therefore are no longer slaves to sin. This is the purpose of being crucified with Christ. It's the end goal, that we would be dead to sin, that we would no longer be its slaves. Now, we like to idolize the idea of the, the rebel without a cause, the devil-may-care attitude, right? But Paul says, it's a, looks at it in a completely different perspective here, he says it's not a rebel without a cause. If you're in rebellion against God, you're living a life of slavery. You're enslaved to your passions, your desires. But he says, if we died with Christ, we are dead to sin. We're free from slavery. We're no longer liable to the penalties for sin. The second truth that Paul teaches in this passage is that although we died with Christ, the negative side, we also rise with Christ. We rise with Christ. 
And this is where I want to focus this Easter morning. How is it that we rise with Christ? What does that mean? Well, Paul teaches in this passage that we rise with Christ in two senses. First, that we will be united with Christ in a resurrection like his. That as we read, that Christ has defeated the last enemy, death, and so on the last day, we too will rise again. Christ's resurrection is the source of our hope that we too will rise. But second, not only does Christ's resurrection give hope to our resurrection, but united to Christ, we have, in a very real sense, already risen with Christ to a new life. Let's consider both of these. First, how is our hope grounded in Christ's resurrection? In verse 5, for example, Paul says, If we have been united with Him in a death like His, then we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. And again in verse 8, If we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. So Paul says, Being united with Christ in His death, our hope is that we shall certainly be resurrected with Him. Now, you may be thinking, perhaps you were dragged here with friends or family, you're thinking, well, that's all well and good if you think that Jesus rose from the dead, but did He rise? And of course, this is a huge objection to Christian belief. Can we really believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Of course, we hope that it's true. Even if we can look our own death in the eye, death is not something we can live with. We know the pain of losing loved ones. We can be virtually debilitated by the irreversibility of death. I used to work with a, a girl in a restaurant whose eight-year-old sister was killed on Christmas Day as they drove out of their driveway by a tree limb that fell on their car. Now, if you have this sort of death happen, how do you live with that? How do you not ask, why didn't we leave seconds sooner, seconds later? Why didn't we decide to stay home? Why didn't we take the other car? How do you live with that irreversibility of death? It shocks us, the absurdity and irreversibility. We're left by others' death with our regrets of things said or perhaps left unsaid, with guilt, with grief. So we can look our own death in the eye bravely, but can we really live with the death of all those we have known and loved? So I think if we're honest, we hope that Jesus' resurrection is true that death's dominion has been destroyed, that he leads the way to life everlasting. But can we really believe it? Is it true? The first thing I want you to notice is Paul's statement in verse 9. He says, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. So what? Well, let's think about this for just a moment. Paul is writing in this letter to people he has never met before, yet in passing he can casually say, we all know that Christ was raised for the dead, from the dead. He's not trying to convince the Romans. It's a shared assumption that he argues from, not for. Jesus' resurrection is common knowledge shared by Paul and the Romans. How could such an extraordinary claim become common knowledge? This isn't far removed from the death, from the death of Jesus, from the actual event. Hundreds of years later, you can gloss over it. Paul is writing closer to Jesus' death than we are to Kurt Cobain's death. So if I tried to tell you Kurt Cobain rose again, you'd say, I know it didn't happen. I was alive when that happened. This is, Paul is closer 
to Jesus' death than we are to Kurt Cobain's death. And it's not like people in Paul's day were more likely to believe in the resurrection. No one in Paul's day was expecting someone to rise from the dead. The Jewish people thought we might resurrect at the end of all things, at the end of the world. Greeks and Romans thought it was impossible to rise again. And many thought even if you could rise again, it would be a bad idea. After all, life is full of pain and misery. Why would we want to come back to this? Yet suddenly the belief that Jesus had risen from the dead explodes around the Mediterranean world within years of his death. And within a century, it's even expanded beyond the Mediterranean world to the east and south into Africa. The entire worldview and practices of people were transformed practically overnight. Two simple examples of this radical change. Notice that Paul refers to Jesus throughout this passage as Christ, as the Messiah of Israel. In the hundred years around Jesus, at least 15 other Jews made messianic claims and attracted followers. But after their deaths, many of these movements simply died out. After all, no Jew expected the true Messiah to die before liberating Jerusalem and restoring the temple. And certainly no Jew expected or could tolerate their Messiah dying on a cross, the most horrifying death possible. Others of these messianic movements just found another Messiah. So Judas the Galilean, for example, claimed to be a Messiah around 6 AD when Jesus was a child. After his death, various sons and grandsons inherited the role of being the Messiah of this movement. Eventually, his relative Manahem uh, was a messianic figure who led in the Jewish rebellion against Rome in AD 70. And then Eliezer was the leader of the Sicarii who died at the fortress of Masada in 73 AD. So for 70 years, they kept passing on this title of Messiah. But after Jesus' death, although his brother James led the early church, no one, no Christian, no non-Christian, mistook him for being the next Messiah. They said, no, this guy who died is our Messiah. So how is it that after Jesus' death, more people believed he was the Messiah than before his death? One obvious explanation is that he actually rose again, and people saw him. Uh, second, briefly, uh, and, and, and Pastor Bird already hinted at this or, or, or pointed this out, that Jews in Jesus' time were famously fastidious about keeping the Sabbath. They'd done so for millennia, observed a Sabbath rest on Saturday. Even the women who went to visit Jesus' grave and to bring these uh, perfumes for his body, they didn't go on Saturday. They waited until the first day of the week after the Sabbath was passed. And yet, uh, and, and meeting on a Sunday in that world would not have been a convenient time to meet. It's the first day of the week, the beginning of the, the work week. It'd be like if I said, all right, we're going to start holding church service tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. And you'd all say, well, we have places to be, right? It's not a convenient time. And yet, suddenly, the early church very early starts meeting on Sunday. So in Acts 20, we read, on the first day of the week, they gathered together to break bread. So how is it that after millennia of observing a Sabbath on Saturday, suddenly they depart from that practice virtually overnight? Why would Jews do this unless Jesus actually rose on the first day and appeared to them? Okay, so you're willing to grant with me that early Christians, Paul and the Romans, believed Jesus rose from the dead. They really believed it in a way that totally reorganized their worldview and changed their behavior. But then we have to ask, what gave rise to this belief? Why did Christians think Jesus rose from the dead? 
The New Testament documents are unanimous on two points that led to this belief. The first is that there was an empty tomb. Jesus was put into a tomb. It was sealed. It was guarded by Roman soldiers. And yet, on the first day, the tomb was empty. An empty tomb alone, of course, does not mean that Jesus rose again. In John's Gospel, for example, Mary weeps, saying, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. The empty tomb alone just suggests the body's been taken. The second point that led to belief that Jesus rose from the dead again was that he appeared to many people. Again, apart from the empty tomb, this too would not necessarily lead to belief in a resurrection. We could just say it's a vision, an apparition. We might say with Ebenezer Scrooge, there's more of gravy than the grave about you, whatever you are. You may be an undigested bit of beef, a blot of mustard, a crumb of cheese. But together, the tomb was empty and Jesus appeared to many people. Paul says up to 500 saw him. Together, this led to the widespread belief in Jesus' resurrection. And this is historical datum that has to be accounted for in some way or another. Producing the body would have been an easy way to discredit the early Christian movement. Yet no one ever produced the body. And why would people claim to see Jesus if they had not? If they were looking for respect, it would have been far easier to set up a memorial at his grave. After all, there were many memorials at the graves of prophets in Jerusalem. They could have preserved his teaching as a slightly eccentric rabbi. This would have been completely socially acceptable. Instead, the disciples stick to their story that they saw Jesus. And they were beaten, mocked, driven from Jerusalem, and martyred in, some in, 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 in varieties of gruesome ways. If it's all an elaborate hoax, surely someone at some point would have said, okay, we're, we're pulling your legs, we're making this up, here's where the body's hidden. And yet no one does that. The simplest explanation for all this, for the eyewitnesses, for the empty tomb, for believing Jesus was the crucified Messiah, for honoring him on the first day as the Lord's day, the simplest explanation for all this is that Jesus did in fact rise from the dead on the first day and appeared to many of his followers. You may not want to accept this simple ex explanation because after all, people don't rise from the dead. But who says that they don't? Of course, people don't rise every day. That's Paul's whole point. This one event is so radically different than all that has come before it and all that has come after it that it marks the fundamental turning point in all of history. If you don't want to accept this simple explanation, that's fine, but you have to offer some plausible alternative for the empty tomb, for the martyred witnesses, for the explosion of Christianity around the world within years of Jesus' death. Paul argues our hope is grounded in this, that Jesus has, in fact, risen from the dead, and that if we died with Christ, we rise with Christ as well. But Paul says we rise with Christ in a second sense. Not only is Christ the guarantee of our future resurrection, but he is our resurrection life now. The Christian has died to sin, but this alone is an inadequate description of our Christian identity. In verse 4, Paul says, We died with Christ in order that just as Christ was raised, we too might walk in newness of life. Similarly, in verse 11, he says, Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The Christian identity is not primarily negative that we have died, but positive. By identifying with Christ, 
in his death and burial, the Christian enters into a newness of life. Daily, we live with Christ and Christ lives in us. By virtue of our union with Christ, he sustains us by his spirit and transfers his power to us. Like a graft, a grafted branch shares the nutrients and the life of a tree through its sap, we too share the very life of Christ. In October 2011, Norma and Gordon Yeager, who had been married for 72 years, were in a tragic car accident. As they were treated in neighboring beds in the hospital, they held hands the entire time. Gordon passed away holding his wife Norma's hand. His breathing stopped, his heart stopped, his life stopped. And yet the heart monitor continued to pick up a heartbeat because Gordon was still united to Norma. With her hand holding his, her heartbeat registered through him. The monitor finally flatlined an hour later when Norma died. In a similar way, we have no power to defeat death. We have no life in ourselves. And yet by virtue of our union with Christ, his life becomes ours. And he does not hold our hand for a mere hour. He holds our hand for eternity. The Christian life is resurrection anticipated. And the final resurrection is life consummated. We rise with Christ and we live a new life now in union with him, in anticipation of our final communion with him. Paul then applies all this in verse 11, which is the first imperative or command in the entire book. And what is this first command he gives after six chapters? It is simply this, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You are dead to sin you're alive to God, and you're in Christ Jesus. Paul says this key as he turns to instruction for living as Christians. The key is to think of ourselves rightly, to rightly understand our identity. We are dead to sin. We're alive to God in Christ Jesus. In sports psychology, it's well known that an athlete's self-talk, what they say to themselves, greatly affects their performance. In one recent study, Cyclists pedaled, were able to pedal 18% longer by telling themselves things like feeling good or push through it. In another study, ultramarathoners in a 60-mile overnight race who used positive self-talk finished a full 25 minutes faster. Now, the point is not that positive thinking solves all of our problems. But both Paul and sports psychologists recognize a fundamental truth about human nature. How we think about ourselves... What we tell ourselves shapes how we act. If you tell yourself, I'm not really worth much, that I'm a mistake, that I have no value, it affects how you act and how you let others treat you. But if you say to yourself, I died with Christ, I am risen with Christ to live to God, it shapes how you behave, how you think about yourself. The Westminster Catechism refers to improving our baptism. It's very strange language, but what it means is this. We were baptized once into Christ, and we were only baptized once, and yet we daily improve our baptism. We're called to reflect on our baptism, to remember that through our baptism, the sign was put on us that we are united to Christ, that we died with him, that we are now alive to God, that when we're tempted, we're to seriously and thankfully consider this meaning of our baptism, the privileges and benefits conferred and sealed by the sacrament. 
So Paul's question begins with, does grace give permission to sin? No way. John Stott puts the point like this. Can a married woman live as though she were still single? Well, yes, I suppose she could. It is not impossible. But let her remember who she is. Let her feel her wedding ring, the symbol of her new life in union with her husband. And she will want to live accordingly. Likewise, can a born-again Christian live as though they were still in their sin? Well, yes, I suppose they could, at least for a while. But let them remember who they are. Let them recall their baptism, the symbol of their new life in union with Christ, and they will want to live accordingly. The 16th century uh, English reformer William Tyndale made the point a bit more pointedly. He said, Jesus didn't die for your sins so you can live in them. Nor did he wash you so that like a swine you can return to your old puddle again. We died with Christ. We rise with Christ. And third, therefore, we can resist sin. We can resist sin. Temptation and besetting sins often feel overwhelming, overpowering. But see who you really are. You are dead to sin. You are alive to God in Christ Jesus. In verse 12, Paul says, Do not let sin reign over you. Its claim on you is false. Precisely because we are free from sin, we must fight against it. We must put it to death. We must drive it from our lives. Its presence in our life is like a foreign enemy. Paul says, Do not present your members, your limbs, your senses, your faculties, as weapons or instruments of unrighteousness. A brief illustration, which of course could be greatly expanded. When Germany invaded Holland, it had no right to Holland. It had no claim, no just claim to Holland. It had no right to command and conscript the Dutch people. We can reasonably say it was wrong for those who collaborated with the German forces to do so. After all, they had no right to conscript them. On the other hand, we can say there's even an obligation to join in the resistance, to drive out this alien and unlawful presence in the Netherlands. Likewise, if we have died with Christ, sin is a pretender, an occupying force, an enemy that has no right to rule over us. We can and we must resist sin, not in our own power, but because we have died with Christ to sin and we rise with Christ and his life is within us. Conversely, if sin's claim on us is false, Paul says God has a true claim on us. We resist sin for the true king. In verse 13, present yourselves to God. We not only negatively resist sin, but positively are called to present ourselves to God. Remember, we live quorum Deo, in God's presence. Our lives and actions are before God. They are present to him. And so Paul calls us to live godly lives simply because nothing less is fitting for those who live in God's presence. Moreover, not only do we honor God as the one who lays a true claim on our life, but we live in a godly manner out of gratitude to him as the one who has brought us, Paul says, from death to life. Finally, Paul says we resist sin because of its false claim. We present ourselves to God because he is our true king, but also we resist sin because we have sure hope of victory. The battle with sin will go on for your entire life. 
If that's the first time you've heard that, I'm sorry, but it will go on. But in verse 14, Paul says, sin shall not be your master. This is not a command, it's not a prediction, it's a promise. Similarly, in Philippians 1, 6, Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. So we can resist sin in hope, knowing that sin's claim on us is false and that although we will never cease to sin in thought, will, and deed entirely in this life. Nevertheless, sin will not have the final victory. It shall not have dominion over us. Finally, Paul says, this is because we are not under law, but under grace. Law identifies sin for us. It helps us see the sin in our hearts, but it cannot undo the dominion of sin. It cannot drive sin out of us. But God's grace in Christ sustains us even in our sin. God's grace in Christ delivers us from our sin. So far from encouraging sin, grace then discourages and even outlaws sin. Grace constitutes a new identity in us. Now sin is alien to us. It's a presence as unnatural. Its presence is an unnatural intrusion in our life. In grace, we can resist sin. Look back over our Easter questions then, if you've been here the last three weeks. Who is Jesus? Jesus is God's son, sent to keep God's promise and raised from the dead to rule God's kingdom. Why did Jesus die? To restore our relationship to God by paying the price of our sin and satisfying God's righteous wrath for our rebellion against him. And then we can say, why did Jesus rise? He rise to share a newness of life with us who have been united to him. He rose from the dead to give us power to resist sin. And this is given to us in union with Christ. We died with Christ. Our old self was crucified beside him like those criminals. But we rise with Christ. His resurrection is our hope for the future and our source of new life in the presence. Therefore, we can resist sin because our Savior has risen from the dead and is alive. Hallelujah. Christ, it is our pleasure to celebrate your victory over death this Easter morning. What you have endured on our behalf is uh, pain, and physical, emotional, and spiritual that is unfathomable by us. We do not even understand the true weight of our sin that was born on the cross. And yet you have done this out of love for us that we might return to union with you, that we might return to communion with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and live in newness of life. And you rose from the grave showing us that death does not have the final word, assuring us of our hope and living in us through the power of your spirit, sustaining us in newness of life. And for this, we stand in awe and gratitude. And so we turn this Easter morning to worship. You who has defeated death, who has broken the power of sin, who has declared its dominion no more, who has brought us free from sin, free from death, and into newness of life.
Amen.